Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been going through the New Testament and um, currently in 1 Corinthians. And so if you're visiting us for the first time, um, you're joining us in an interesting part of the uh, uh, scriptures this morning. Uh, again, it deals, chapter 7 deals with marriage. And we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 9 this morning. Now, when the letter was written to Paul, the people in Corinth had, in the Corinthian church, they had a lot of questions. But the, the, reason, the main reason for this letter was for marital questions. And so Paul's going to answer them, and he answers them here in chapter 7, but even before he answered those questions about marriage in chapter 7, again, the reason for which this letter was wrote, he thought he'd you know, take advantage of, of answering some other questions in the first six chapters of chapter 7. So like I said, the church at Corinth wrote to Paul about several problems that were going on in the church. So Paul used... Again, his answer to deal with some of the other problems first. So you could look at chapters 1 through 6 as kind of a bonus. Paul just answered those questions in first uh, six chapters before he answered the question in verse 7, or chapter 7. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul dealt with the problem of divisions in the church. You know, some were following Peter, some Apollo, some Paul, you know. And so there was this division. My pastor is better than yours, and my leader is better than yours. And, and, and we see that. And it was causing division in the church. So Paul dealt with that problem. Then in chapter 5, he showed that faith in Christ created a new morality. There was immorality in the church. There was a young man living with his stepmom. And so Paul dealt with that situation, and again, a lot of immorality in the church. In chapter 6, Paul talked about the nature of Christian liberty, that is, and how it relates to permissible and non-permissible areas. They were taking each other to court. Christians taking Christians to court in front of unbelievers. And so Paul dealt with that situation in chapter 6. But now in chapter 7... He starts to answer questions that was, that was the reason for this letter to begin with. And once again, the idea of Christian liberty comes up. But now the problem focuses on family relationships. The first of those questions dealt with marriage, an area where the Corinthians had serious problems. And like a lot of, uh, of their problems... A lot of their marital problems were due to the pagan and moral, morally corrupt society that they lived in. And they hadn't totally separated from that corrupt and immoral society. Their society tolerated fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, and concubines, or mistresses. First, there's the question, because again, Paul, you know, we don't read anything about Paul ever being married or a mention of a wife. And here's Paul's going to give this advice in chapter 7 about marriage and relationships. So the question is, well, was Paul ever married? Now, some think he wasn't because of what it says in verse 7. Notice what it says in 7. 
Paul says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. So Paul's saying, Hey, I wish all men were like I am. It's hard to think that Paul was never married because of his background and because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court in the land, Jewish court in the land, he had to have been married before because that was one of the the conditions of marriage, to be in the Sanhedrin. Paul's wife may have died, all right, before this time, or she may have left him when he became a Christian. But in Paul's day, divorce was a common thing. And it was possible for men and women to have been married more than 20 times. Many wives were not interested in being housewives. They were not interested in being mothers. And by the end of the first century, married couples with no children, it was a common thing. Both men and women were determined to live their own lives in spite of their marriage vows or commitments. And that's something you see very much today. The early church had members living together. That still goes on today. Uh, It also had those who'd been married and divorced many times. But not only that. Some believers had gotten the idea that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married. And they totally put marriage down. So the situation was difficult and confusing for even mature Christians. And it was especially confusing for the immature Christians, the young believers. So the big question to Paul was this. What do we do now that we're Christians? Should we stay together as husband and wife? And, and you know, uh, if, if we're both Christians, should we stay together? Should we get divorced if our spouse is an unbeliever? Should we become single or should we stay single? All of these different possibilities created a lot of confusion. And Paul answers them in this part of the letter. In verses 1 through 7... Paul starts with the question about being single. He teaches that celibacy, abstaining from sex, is good. But that celibacy can be tempting and that celibacy is wrong for married people and that celibacy is a gift from God. Not all people can live that way. In verses 1 through 2, Paul speaks on marriage and celibacy. And he explains from a realistic or practical rather than a moral point of view. He looks at being single from the point of view of common sense rather than from the standpoint of being right or wrong if you do get married. But in Paul's judgment, the practical benefits of staying single were important. But if a person did get married, it didn't make him or her more or less spiritual in their life. But marriage brought responsibilities that the Christians could not ignore. These responsibilities were especially hard in times of distress and especially when they were going through persecution. So let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 7. And Paul says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Without a doubt, what God wants for us to be and where he wants us to be, that's the best thing for us. And to reach the closest possible relationship with him is his goal for our lives. Now, this may be done through marriage or celibacy, but neither should be pursued as an end in itself. So neither being single or married totally guarantees happiness. The Lord is the one who equips us to be happy in what he's ordained for us. And Paul wrote both of these statements here in verse 1. 
where he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He also wrote in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. If the Lord wanted Paul to be married, Paul would have said, hey, it's good for a man to be married. Paul's main purpose in life was to please his Lord and to accomplish everything that his Lord, uh, uh, that he could for his Lord. And since in his own life he could serve the Lord best by not being married, being celibate was the best for Paul and his desire in serving the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that the state of marriage is bad. For Paul to have insisted that others should be single like himself, that would have been wrong. There's no suggestion that Jesus required any of his servants to stay single, and there were no religious leaders that had the right to command this as well. So in this area, we can make choices that are strictly individual, personal. And a person's choice cannot be said to be bad and another's good. Because it all depends on the measure of God's grace to each individual. Paul says here in verse 1, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. He means that celibacy is a satisfactory state as long as it enables a person to be and to do their best for the Lord. Celibacy was very uncommon among the Jews and among the heathen in the first ages of the church. It wasn't part of the Nazarite vow, though no doubt many Nazarites, like John the Baptist, you know, if he really was one of them, were celibates. And among the heathen, celibacy hardly existed. And as we have seen, the Lord Jesus, while teaching the holiness of marriage, nevertheless commended celibacy for those to whom it is given and for who are able to receive it. Matthew nineteen eleven. Paul is in full agreement with his master when he says here in verse 7, Each man has his own gift from God, one after this manner and another after that. Nowhere in the New Testament is marriage referred to as being a state inferior to that of celibacy. However, much celibacy is commended under certain circumstances for certain people. And neither should those who marry be considered carnal Christians by those who stay single because they are divinely enabled to live that celibate life. So Paul says it's good to stay single, but he's not telling us that marriage is a lower class position in life. He's not downgrading marriage. He's not putting down marriage. Paul thinks very highly of marriage. All you have to do is read Ephesians 5, 23 through 33. But in Paul's view of marriage that he gives here, it was a specific answer to this particular church in response to, as he said in verse 1, the things of which you wrote to me. To touch a woman was a common Jewish expression for sexual intercourse. The phrase is used in that way in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, in Ruth 2.9, and Proverbs 6.29. And Paul uses it to say that it's a good thing for Christians not to have sexual intercourse. In other words, be single and not married. He's not saying that being single is better than marriage or that the only good condition or that marriage is in any way wrong or inferior to being single. And he's saying, all he's saying, I should say, all he's saying is that being single, as, uh, uh, as long as it's celibate, can be a good thing. 
God even said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So all people need companionship. And God ordained marriage. He wrote the book on marriage. He, he, he officiated at the first wedding. And among, all, and among other things, the most, it's the most fulfilling and common means of companionship. But God did allow for singleness. And he didn't make marriage mandatory under the old covenant. But Jewish tradition looked at marriage as the perfect situation and looked at singleness as being disobedient to God's command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 2. He goes on to say, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Paul basically says here that celibacy is good, but it's tempting. He said, because of sexual immorality. Now, that does not mean that all of the Corinthian church members were immoral, even though a lot of them were. It didn't mean, but it didn't mean all of them were. You see, Paul is talking about the danger of fornication for those who are single. Because if sexual desire isn't fulfilled, that desire can become very strong. And there's a great temptation for sexual immorality for those who are single. And especially in societies like ancient Rome and our own society where sexual freedom is freely encouraged, practiced, and glorified. But marriage cannot be downgraded to being God's outlet for the sex drive. Paul isn't suggesting Christians go out, find another Christian, and marry them just to keep from falling into sexual sin. He had a much higher view, as I said, of marriage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Paul's purpose here is to emphasize the reality of the sexual temptations of being single and to recognize that they have an, an acceptable outlet in marriage. And that's why he said in verse 2, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Even, even though celibacy is a good thing, it's not better than marriage. And being celibate has its dangers and temptations that marriage do not have. And in verses 3 through 6 now, Paul is going to cover the Christian's attitude towards what, uh, towards what sex should be. Being married involves certain obligations that husbands and wives owe to each other, especially in the matters of sex. What should the Christian attitude be towards sex? Do you know? Is it based on how often should it be? Or what's normal? Is it based on age? Think about it. What, what, again, what is your attitude towards this important relationship in marriage? Um, does it matter to you? Is it important to you? Is it important enough to, to, to you to change it if need be and bring it in line with what God's word says? You know, some say, well, you know, sex is only for newlyweds or, or you know, or while you're young. You know, or, you know, after being married for a number of years, maybe you just kind of settle for whatever happens or doesn't happen. You kind of accept the idea that, well, you know, that's just the way it is or, or that's, how it, that's just the way it's going to be. And you often live the rest of your lives in frustration 
as if the longer you're married or the older you get, the less you should enjoy this special sexual gift from God. Remember, God created it. The Bible teaches that when you get married, it involves certain practical obligations that both husbands and wives owe to each other, and especially when it comes to this area of sex. Paul tells it like it is here. He teaches that sex between married people is not only a good and binding or required condition of marriage, but it's also a responsibility based on one's need and one's desire. And one of the reasons behind adultery and pornography in marriage is because there's not enough sexual relationship in the marriage. But before I go on any further, it needs to be said that there, this is no reason or excuse that justifies adultery or pornography. A survey was taken some time back, and the research indicates that out of 168 hours in a week, seven days, the average married couple seldom spends more than an hour or two in the whole week in physical lovemaking, which is a safeguard against extramarital affairs. And if you're not fulfilling your spouse's needs in this area, you are failing to follow the principles that Paul gives here in verses 3 through 5. God gave the husband and the wife the loving responsibility to provide sexual intimacy for each other. And again, there are a lot of wrong attitudes about sex that, you know, that results from many places. Maybe, you know, when, when you were younger, you know, early training, you know, well, it's dirty. Or it's only for having children. Or it's the animal side of man. And yet the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, 4, that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. A Christian home starts with a Christian marriage in the will of God. This means loyalty and it means purity. It means sex outside of marriage is sinful and it is destructive. Sex within the protective bonds of marriage can be enriching and glorifying to God. The thing that does dishonor and defile the marriage relationship is adultery. Only sin can pollute your marriage. The scriptures tell us very clearly that the joy of sex between husband and wife, it is God's plan. It's God's doing. It's not dirty. It's not immoral. It's not sinful. It's not defiling. It's just the opposite. It's a place of honor in marriage. The, the, the bedroom is like the holy of holies for a husband and wife where they go and they meet privately to celebrate their love for each other. And it's a time that's meant to be both holy and extremely enjoyable. And in God's view, there's a sharing of a pleasurable experience between husband and wife, each one having an equal right to the other's body. Each of you do not have the freedom to, I'm sorry, each of you do have the freedom to initiate this sexual intimacy. But you also have the responsibility to please your partner and be pleased in return. So here in verses 3 through 5, we have the basic principles concerning the responsibility and the enjoyment of sex in marriage. Look at verse 3 now. It says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, Paul is saying here, again, with a, this is the first principle, the principle of need. 
The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Each husband and wife need to recognize, must recognize, that their spouse has a need that only he or she can fill. The need that Paul has in mind here is the sexual need. And Paul places both husband and wife on an equal level when it comes to satisfying this need. In the sexual relationship, the priority must be to satisfy the needs of their companion. Again, notice in verse 3, it says, Let the husband render, all right, and, and vice versa, the wife also. The word render means to give what one owes or is under obligation to give. In other words, God says it's a responsibility. The word render doesn't express the idea of, of doing your partner a favor, but of fulfilling and obeying the word of God, which is your duty. The scriptures tell us it doesn't suggest. The scriptures tell us it's not a suggestion. It's a command. It commands us. You are to meet your partner's sexual needs. The rule is not about how often or what's normal or abnormal, but it's what's needed. It's as needed that this this requirement is to be met. You know, how often or what's normal or what's enough? Hey, the, the, the thing here is everybody's need is different. Some needs are more, some needs are less, but whatever they are, they are to be met. But again, naturally, there are things to consider. One's health, illness, physical limitations, and injuries. These things all have to be considered. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here, Paul gives the principle of authority. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Paul's words here, Paul's statement in verse 4 certainly clarifies what spouses owe to each other. Each husband and wife must recognize their spouse has a need that only she or he can fill. And the the need that Paul has in mind here is the sexual need. And the scriptures tell us that when we get married, we actually turn over the sole right to our own body. We become one flesh. Each owns the other body. To put it bluntly, your body belongs to your partner and vice versa. Your body belongs to your wife. Your body belongs to your husband for your spouse's enjoyment. But again, a note here. Since our bodies, since our spouse's body is our own body, because the Bible says the two shall become one, how can we ever think of forcing or harming it? That is, all unreasonable demands are to be excluded. Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, Paul says, So husbands ought to love their own bodies as their own... I'm sorry. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And the point is, we will always do what's best for the other person, for what they enjoy. This is where communication is important especially in the areas of sexual intimacy. You need to tell each other what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. But never pressure or force your spouse to do something that doesn't bring them uh, pleasure. And, and, And this is an area where sometimes the guys go to the scriptures, and probably one of the maybe few times, 
But uh, where he says, well, my wife, the Bible says that my wife is to submit. Not to things, you know, again, that, that she doesn't enjoy or take pleasure in. And guys, you don't throw the scriptures at them like that. And you know what? That's not loving your spouse. That's self-gratification. It's for you. You're doing that for you more than you heard. That's not love on your part. That's selfish gratification on your part. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Love does not behave itself rudely. Love seeks not its own, but the welfare of another. Love does what's best for the other person. One of the easiest ways to hurt your partner and put your marriage in danger is to force them to do something they don't enjoy. Or, on the other hand, to hold back your physical affection. And based on Scripture, you don't have that right to do that. Many times withholding sex is used in a negative way, as a way of revenge, <clears throat> or to frustrate, or, or to hurt or pay back if you're wronged or hurt. But you don't have that right. Another side note, it will be hard to have sexual intimacy if one, or, if one is hurt or wronged. And if that offense is not repented of uh, by the offender and forgiven by the offended. Verse 4, the third principle here. <clears throat> Paul said, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The principle of habit or regularity. Paul says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And then afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the scriptures tell us that we must not cheat our partner by refraining from the, the habit of sex or the regularity of it the regularity of it if this principle is interrupted three things uh, three conditions must be met first of all paul says there has to be mutual consent all right both must agree secondly this mutual consent must be temporary it must be for a certain time for the reason Here's the third thing. For the reason that's higher than our important command to maintain our physical joy, and that's fasting and prayer. Maybe there, you know, there's somebody that you're praying for. God you know, wants you to pray for somebody or something. You, know, you go to your spouse say, look, you know what? I want to dedicate uh, the next week you know, to fasting and prayer and just you know, give myself to the Lord and, and just focus on Him. And, and so you know, we're going to you know, just hold back for a week, and, and then after that, you know, then we're to come back together again. So the only legitimate reason to abstain from this principle of habit is fasting and prayer. And when that reason for fasting and prayer is over, then you should come together again, Paul says. Why? Because if you break this commandment, you open your marriage to Satan's temptations. And God knows this. Or he wouldn't have put it in the scriptures. That's why he tells us to have an active, regular sex life with our, spou our, our spouse. Again, these aren't just some ideas that can be debated or compromised. These are the commands of the Word of God for marriage. And it's a natural part of the love life of marriage. So, 
You need to make every effort to give your partner a good sexual release. And if this isn't happening, then do whatever you can do to remedy the situation to meet the biblical standards that are given to us here. Because if not, you're putting your marriage in harm's way. You'll be doing you, your spouse, and your marriage a favor if you don't. But if you don't, you'll be inviting problems. Dr. Ed Wheat, the author of a book called uh, entitled Intended for Pleasure, he said this, It is God's will in every marriage that you love each other with an all-absorbing spiritual, emotional, and physical attraction that continues to grow throughout their lifetime together. This isn't unrealistic. It's not a fantasy. It's possible for every Christian couple because you know why? It's God's will. It's God's will. But you know what? It takes effort on our part, a caring effort, a diligent effort, and God has to be intimately involved in all of our efforts. Whatever interrupts this delicate, fragile friendship and balance opens the door to temptation. Tender, consistent marital intimacy is the best defense against the uncontrolled desires of passion or lust, which is wrong. It is sin. Closing verses 6 through 9. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says here as he closes this portion of this section on marriage, he says, in my opinion... In my opinion, that is what should be done. He says, though I don't know of anything that the Lord said about this matter. He said, I wish that all of you were like me, but God has given different gifts to each of us. But he says, here's my advice for people who have never been married and for widows. You should stay single just as I am. But if you don't have enough self-control, then go ahead and get married. After all, it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Paul here is simply giving wise advice concerning marriage practices. Paul says this isn't a commandment, but a guideline to follow so that Satan won't have a chance to tempt the husband or wife. He doesn't refer to some scripture commandment to support his position because there is no scripture commandment recording these different problems. But later on, further down in verse 40, he says this. He says, I think also I have the Spirit of God. I think I also have the Spirit of God regarding his advice. That his letter to the Corinthians has come down to us as Scripture. And it gives us great value to his advice. And it puts it in the category of something more than just his opinion. And the Scripture says that all Scripture is written and inspired by God for what's right, to know what's right, to know what's wrong, to know how to make it right and how to keep it right. And so Paul's word here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
It is the wisdom of God given by Paul here. It's not just his opinion. It's more than his opinion. And at this, Paul, at this time, Paul didn't have a wife. And he didn't remarry. He wasn't taking a wife along with him on his, on his travels, on his missionary journeys. There are people in the Lord's work who haven't married because of this. Because their desire to serve the Lord is one that, you know what, I, I, I won't be encumbered. I won't be having to, to you know, consider those things that, that I can't, you know, not be responsible for. Because in marriage, there are responsibilities that we can't neglect. But in Paul's case, he says, for his service of the Lord, he says, I'm going to remain single. But again, that's not for everybody. You know, that, that, that's something that, that God has to enable to do. It's a gift that, that God gives. So again, um, but he said, if, if they can't exercise self-control, let them marry because it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So sexual pressure, uh, but sexual pressure is not the best reason for getting married. It's better to marry the right person in the Lord than to burn with lust. And that's an important thing to consider. Many new Christians in Corinth thought that all sex was, was, sex was wrong, and so, the, so, and so engaged couples were deciding not to get married. But here, Paul was telling couples, look, you know, it, it, you, th- those who want to get married, they shouldn't frustrate their normal sexual drive by not getting married. But again, this doesn't mean that, that people who have trouble controlling themselves should marry the first person that comes along, the first person that's willing to marry them. It's better to deal with the pressure of desire, all right, seeking God, going to prayer, help, asking God to help you control that desire, to keep it, you know, uh, within the boundaries, you know, unless I get married, but to, to ask God to, like Paul said, he said, you know, I beat my body into subjection. I keep my body in subjection. You know, and it's also for you know, many other passions that we have, not just sexual desires, but anger or, 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 or you know, things that, that you know, I want to, you know, might act out on. I've got to keep my body under subjection. I got to go to the Lord. I got to read the scriptures. I got to pray. Lord, help me. And so that's what Paul is saying here. It's better to deal with the pressure of desire than to deal with the heartaches of an unhappy marriage. And, and sometimes people get married out of just, you know, hey, you know, I, I, I can't deal with being single, you know, or lonely, or, and, and that's understandable. But don't make that the reason for getting married or for sexual, you know, companionship. Yeah, that's God's desire, but you know, it, it has to be God's way. Marry somebody that, that, that God has pointed out, that God has shown you, it's your will, and that, that again, that uh, they're a believer, of course, and then, you know, make it right. Do it in the right way. Because that, that way, you know, you're going to enjoy that marriage. But for, for marrying for any other reason, it's, it's, you know, if it's not a love in the hearts of both of you, it's going to be difficult. And within time, uh, you know, it, love, it's not just love and good times that hold a marriage together. Commitment. Because it's not always love and good times. There are difficult times. But that's where the vows come in and the commitment. And that'll be the next portion of our study here in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul deals with the marriage vows. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we are so thankful for 
how you cover all these different areas, Lord, of life. Father, you, 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 God, you teach us about marriage, the intimacy of marriage, about raising children, God, how to deal with finances, Father, and, and God, with, with our emotions and, and all of those things, God. You, you are just so, such a wise God, infinite and wise, Lord. And Father, help us to see the scriptures that way, God. Help us to measure ourselves by your word, Lord. Am I doing, am I fulfilling the scriptures, God? And if not, help us to bring our line, our, our behavior, our conduct in line with the word of God, Lord. May it be our measuring stick. May Jesus Christ be our model. And may we desire to follow the model, Lord. So, Father, may you bless your people, Lord. May your spirit move among them, God. May he speak to them, God. And again, may we make the changes, God, in our lives where we need to change, Lord. That our lives may become more like the lives that you desire us and you've appointed for us to live, God. According to your word, in your power, in your love, and in your strength. Father, we pray for the offering we'll receive today, Father. We, again, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your generosity, your goodness, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.